Okay, on to Trollope. Um, this is going to be very informal tonight. I will, I'll just start out saying uh, a, a, uh, a few things, uh, mostly off the top of the head. This novel, The Warden, is, uh, I think, a very important, it's a very entertaining novel, but it's a very I important novel for uh, the 19th century and for Anthony Trollope. He had so far done some Irish novels. He had his career was moving but not going too far. He this novel becomes I don't think he had it in mind, but it was it was a first really big success for him. And it then gave him the idea of writing a series of novels, the Barsetshire novels, which constitute maybe the best series of novels. Uh, in English literature in the 19th century. And uh, the Trollope, uh, the Warden is not the best of them. The best is, I th the best are, I think, the second, Barchester Towers, and the last, the last chronicle of, of Barson. But there are several magnificent novels. Uh, my, one of my favorites is The Small House at Allington. And these books are not only a portrait of life in this area, which is roughly between Winchester and Salisbury. It's a portrait of Victorian life, and especially of the Victorian clergy in, in the Warden and Barchester Towers and the Last Chronicle. But it's also, uh, it is, these are also explorations of human morality done by uh, someone who, without being an intellectual, in fact, I sometimes suspect he wasn't very smart at all, but was deep. Trollope, as a boy, would sit around when he was supposed to be doing his homework, would, would sort of dream and go into a kind of fugue state, and he would imagine circumstances and stories would form in his mind. It sounds like a kind of mental illness. But in fact, this is, this is how he learned, this is how he became a writer. His mother was a bad writer, Fanny Trollope. Wrote a very famous book, what was it, Domestic Lives of the Americans. She traveled through America and wrote this hilarious, nasty attack on everything American. She had, uh, well, she'd run a boarding house or something in Cincinnati for a while. Did she? Yeah, I think so. But because uh, but, her husband had gone belly up in his business and she didn't know what to do. So she was just trying to, uh, 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 you know, make a living. But Anthony, Anthony was sort of a screw-up. He was a ne'er-do-well. And he went to work for the post office. And he was a screw-up there. He, he, he has his most charming character he invented is Johnny Eames who works in an office, and he's a screw-up. He calls him a young hobbledy-hoy, somebody who can never get his act together. <laughs> we all know people like that, so all of us have children like that. And then Trollope got, Trollope got sent to be a postal inspector, because in, they wanted to get rid of him. So they sent him to Ireland, where he had to spend all day and 12 hours in the saddle, riding from place to place, and, and it made a man out of him. He became very good. In fact, his career in the in the English postal system was very fine. You know, he went. They sent him at the at, at the height of his fame as a novelist 
He was sent to Australia for over a year to improve their mail delivery, and, and he, he made some great innovations and things. So he was an inspired bureaucrat uh, in the Postal Service. And he would get up every morning at like, at, I don't know, five, and he would put on a dressing gown. His servant would bring him a cup of black coffee, and he would write for an hour. You know, he, he would produce so many words a day. It was like a machine. But anyway, this novel is unusual because Trollope never tips his hand in his later career. He doesn't tell you what he's thinking. You may think you know, or he may mislead you, but it's always like the magician. He's showing you this, whereas over here he's really doing what he's doing. With this novel, he tips his hand. He shows you what he's doing. He, the, the novel takes up, and I'll shut up in about two minutes. The novel takes up uh, several questions, and there are several issues on the table. The big issue, the first big issue, is uh, reform of the clergy, which was very much in the, the the church was rich, the church was corrupt, a lot of rich people weren't doing their duty. There's a there's a there's a character who's just mentioned who becomes a big character in later novels, Vessie Stanhope, and Vessie Stanhope has this living in a great in a church. And he's got a position in the cathedral. He lives in Italy, you know. At Addison, and he's well known for his house on Lake Como and the hospitality he shows. You know, elite visiting uh, visitors from England. So there, it's not that there wasn't a problem. There was, and uh, and Trollope, being a liberal Whig, thinks that these things should be fixed. The second thing is the power of the press. And some of the most hilarious parts of the book are the portrayal of the Jupiter, which is, you, you probably have read this, but you know, the nickname of the London Times was the Thunderer. So it's the Jupiter is the, is the god of thunder. So it's the London Times, and, and, he, and he hates it. Uh, so the abuses of the press. But thirdly, thirdly, he takes on the problem of radical reformers. People who see a problem, but they are th willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater because nothing stands in their way. So he creates these characters. You know, Mr. Bold, the reformer, uh, Archdeacon Grantley, who has always been my favorite character in all in Trollope. Uh, Grantly, the hidebound young man, but he's a hidebound reactionary. He will defend the clerical order up to the end. It's my world, my profession, and if there's corruption, he'll defend that too. <laughs> yes. Because you know this is because he has no he has, he has no illusions, but he is a pure partisan player. Trollope, from the beginning, hates Archdeacon Grantly. By the end of the book, he says, well, I have been unkind, I've been unfair, because, you know, he has many virtues, but, it, but my point here was to talk about his foibles. And this disturbed me for a while, because I happen to like Archdeacon Gradley. But in later novels, he's much more fair, though, though it becomes much more three-dimensional. And all you could say is, he, here he makes a satiric portrait by Barchester Towers, the 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 man 
the man is a champion, although he's still somebody with obviously a lot to answer for. And then, of course, you have John Bold, the classic liberal reformer. Something that where there's minor abuses, but, you know, let's reform it. And, of course, he ruins it. And, in, in the, and then of the, 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 the most hostile portrait is, of course, Tom Towers of the, uh, of the Jupiter, who doesn't even admit to working for the Jupiter. <laughs> and uh, so Trollope puts these three balls in the air and manages to construct a novel around them. He says in his autobiography that maybe he took up, maybe in a novel about church reform, he shouldn't have taken up the abuses of the press. I'm sure he knew better when he was writing the when he was writing the warden, because in doing this, each extreme figure is is it counterpoints the other. You know, it's there's checks and balances here. And what and we'll talk about this in uh, in uh, when, as soon as the conversation starts. But the one thing you can get out of these novels, and by the way, this is a key to all future great novels of Trollope, because he never explains things again. He never goes out of his way to use overt satire as he does here. Here he assumes the reader doesn't understand his point of view, and he has to lay things on the line. So the attack on Charles Dickens, he would never do it that way again. The attack on Thomas Carlyle, he would never do that again. The overt portrait of John Bold as a good man, but an utter fool who destroys all that, all that you know, is good around him. All of this is typically Trollope, but it's, it's, it's out in the open. Usually Trollope pulls all his punches. He hated Dickens, and he talks about this in his autobiography, because for Dickens, everything is, is uh, wonderful, beautiful, charming angels or demons, you know. And Trollope just says, you know, bad people often have good qualities, good people have weaknesses and bad qualities, and it's a mistake to portray everything in terms of extremes. And so it's the essence of Trollope. To under, he ne his, his evil character, the Portuguese Jew in the way we live now, is horrible. He's a stock manipulator. No offense. He's a stock manipulator. He's also, but you know, you feel sorry for him. You know, in the end, and um, you know, this is this is uh, this is Trollope's method, and it's a method that makes the reader more humane. But anyway, I'll, I'll shut up and uh, we'll begin a more general conversation. Come, come, come. I just have a question. Where did, where did Trollope get such intimate insight into the clergy? Well, um, he did hang around in some of these places like, like Winchester and Salisbury. Uh, I think he lived in Salisbury for a while, and um, he um, obviously he's not a terribly religious person. You know, he's a liberal Whig. They thought that the church should basically, you know, tend tend to people's, you know, s spiritual and moral life, and sort of 
back off, back out of the uh, out of out of society and politics. And they should give up a lot of their money. He's he's sympathetic to John Bold's point of view. It's just that he also knows that gee, it's not you know. It's not a bad thing for a country to have a clash of men like the <coughs> Anglican clergy, many of whom they're devoted to higher things than just getting and spending. <coughs> so, um, yeah, it, it is interesting. I've read a couple of biographies, and why would why he got so interested in them is a is a is a is a case is a case, but. The portrait of Septimus Harding is one of the most beautiful portraits in English literature. He is weak, he's feeble, but you know when he gets his back up about doing the right thing, he stands up to his son-in-law and to his daughter. He stands up to everybody because right is right, as he says. Very engaging character. Yeah, yes. yeah. No, he's a charming person. Yeah. It's interesting the uh, third-person omniscient point of view is so readily apparent, of course, and I found it very entertaining, his commentary about yeah. the characters as he introduces them. For example, on page uh, uh, 16, uh, nor is there any good reason why Eleanor Harding should not love John Bull. He has all those qualities which are likely to touch a girl's heart. He's brave, eager, and amusing, well-made and good-looking, young and enterprising, his character is, in all respects, good. He has sufficient income to support a wife. He is her father's friend, and above all, he is in love with her. It's very charming. Yeah. Very yeah. charming portraits. Yes. And another thing that, that I, I found interesting there, in this town, the size we are to take it to be, there are very few people, as even her sister says, uh, whom she can marry. That is, uh, it's it's not hard and fast, but there there's a class distinction. She cannot marry a day laborer, you know, without a great great loss of everything. But uh, so he he's one of the few around. He's so attractive. Yes, right. He's got this charisma. This uh, he catches everybody off guard. He's just uh, you know he's he's really fun to read about. He's the kind of character that my students would love to read more about, not necessarily because of what his political bent would be, but because he's so lively. He has Well, that comes to an end. Oh, does it? Next novel. Uh-oh. But that's okay. Uh, well, how does it come to an end? Well, he dies. He dies. kills him off. Kills him off. Trollope can't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell me how he dies. I'd like to know. It's a spoiler, oh, so I know. disease. We just hear about it. Yeah. Because oh, you can look, Eleanor Bold is about as charming a young lady as exists in English fiction. You know, she's dedicated to her father. Oh, loyal. She's beautiful, but not in a perfect beauty, but so you could pass her by on the street, he says, without noticing her, but if you spent two hours with her, you would never forget her. And uh, she is so wonderful and so loyal. She's a little headstrong. She does dumb things, like when she goes to John Bold and tries to talk him out of the lawsuit. But um, she's wonderful, and she's too good for him. And, and Trollope clearly feels, just as he's wrong about Archdeacon Grantley, because, look, Archdeacon Grantley has these creepy children. All right. Now, tell me, tell me, what we meet his wife, Susan, who is Eleanor's older sister. Now, Susan is beautiful, charming, accomplished, Level-headed, 
she knows what her husband is like, and she always calls him Archdeacon, which is which is even in bed she calls him Archdeacon. I like it. Which is hilarious. And uh, remind remind uh, remind me to say to, if so you don't know what an Archdeacon is, I'll I'll, I'll explain. But but uh, Susan is. In her, she's she is an older version of Eleanor. She's worldly wise now, and she's got children. How could such a mother, with such a father, how could she marry Grantly, and how could she have who in in his parody form, and how could she have such rotten children? The answer is no. It's impossible. So in Barchester Towers, you would get rid of half the children. Huh. You know, and uh, and. They, had, they do have a problem daughter who appears in later novels, and in fact also appears in the Palliser novels. Does doesn't she? she? Yes, uh, okay. because doesn't she, I think she has, a, she has an almost romance with uh, Plantagenet Palliser, Lady Dumbello, as she uh, <laughs> becomes known. <laughs> but the point is, you know, Trollope hasn't figured everything out. He's already, he shows now he's a master novelist for the first time in this book. But he hasn't got everything figured out, but uh, so he straightens out these characters as time goes by. What about John Bold? What did, uh, uh, what's his problem? He's underemployed. <laughs> I think so. Well, he has no so perspective. That's what having having yeah. money. He's got money, but he he won't practice medicine. He had, because the details bore him. They're beneath his. Uh, he he believes in big ideas. You almost forget later on that he is a physician. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. I have to go back and I think, wait a minute. He's only had three pay. He's only collected three fees <laughs> since he's been <laughs> in Barchester. He's really ambitious in that regard. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the other hand, well, he attacks the. He attacks a, a very minor church. Benefice. Yeah. And uh, that may may be slightly out of line, but it but it's uh, it's very small, and it's it represents the father of the woman he wants to marry. It's like there's yes. no judgment here. Right? No, no no thinking through what he's doing. Well, that's and the what his sister what tells him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he here, starts this, and she says, think of what could happen, and of course it does. But isn't that the nature of self-righteous people? Let me, let me read yes. this little passage. Uh, he says that, he's talking, uh, in chapter 2, he talks about, about John Bull. He says, I fear he is too much imbued with the idea that he has a special mission for reforming it, that is, for reforming the world. It uh, would be well if one so young had a little more diffidence himself and more trust in the honest purposes of others, if he could be brought to believe that old customs need not necessarily be evil and that changes may possibly be dangerous. But no, Bold has all the ardor and self-assurance of a Danton and hurls his anathemas against time-honored practices with the violence of a French Jacobin. <laughs> right. That's good. You know, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. His passion is the reform of all abuses. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And um, this is the French Revolution. And of course, it's unfortunately both the left and right in America today. 
There's always everybody is out to to co correct the the uh, the character of every and, and behavior of everybody else, and you can't you can't you people are simply not allowed to lead a normal life anymore. Some of my favorite characters in the in the book. Well, I, I really liked Eleanor. I really liked John. Well, I, I loved the warden. Yes. But I especially liked those poor men who were in the hospital. <laughs> the, Whenever they appeared, I was like, oh, good, let's see what they're up to now. Yes, the beast. Who's, who's going to fall asleep? Yeah. Who's, you know, who's going you to fall sense, off his chair? In a sense, Michael, they lead a fairly comfortable life. Sure. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're well looked after. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, bull comes along and agitates, you know. Yeah, right. uh, and uh, in fact, they're they're better off than they were in their lives. Oh yeah, I mean, right. They're, they're day laborers. Only one of them ever made any money, and he says sadly, "I made about a hundred pounds a year once, and his children took it all from him." Yeah. So that's why he's now in the position with no one to look after him in his <clears> old age. It's interesting how that Mr. Ball on his practical deathbed is still obsessed with money. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Life. Yeah. No, yes, and, and uh, that's, it's a wonderful passage. In fact, I think I've got it uh, uh, toward the very end there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says, In uh, your reverence, shall we get the hundred a year then? Right. And he says, uh, <laughs> And, um, yeah, he says, um, how gently did Mr. Harding try to extinguish the false hope of money? He'd been so wretchedly raised to disturb the quiet of the dying man. One other week and his mortal coil would be shuffled off. In one short week would God resume his soul and set it apart for its irrevocable doom. Seven more tedious days and nights of senseless inactivity, and all would be over for poor Bell in this world. And yet, with his last audible words, he was yes. demanding his money, money rights and asserting himself to be the proper heir of John Hiram's bounty. Not on him, poor sinner as he was, be the load of such sin. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, it's not bold. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Nice prose. Yeah. <laughs> well, Am I let's, correct uh, that, sorry, sorry, go ahead. that we never really do find out what the will? We never do. No, no, really. Even the lawyer never. hadn't read it. Exactly. <laughs> he gives Nor his opinion, but at but no they, point is. But he never get the understanding. He even read it. Yeah. Did nobody, did they really read this? Archdeacon Bradley says he's read it, but maybe that was 10 or 15 years earlier, and he only remembers the part. What, what we do know, what we do know about the will, Trollope tells us in the opening chapter. Right. And, um, in fact, I can... Today's modern-day foundations, they are so far from what the intent of the right. original benefactor. It's the so same thing the, today. Yeah, right. Yeah. True. The, uh, we know that... Uh, let's see what it says. The, um, there are peculiar circumstances. Um, <coughs> the uh, one John Hiram in 1434 made money in the town as a wool stapler 
In his will, he left the house in which he died and certain meadows and closes near the town for the support of 12 superannuated wool carters, all of whom should have been born and bred and spent their mm -hmm. days in Barchester. He also appointed that an almshouse should be built for their abode with a fitting residence for a warden, which warden was also to receive a certain sum annually out of the rents of the said butts and patches. He moreover willed, having had a soul alive to harmony, that the precentor of the cathedral should have the option of being also the warden. So basically, uh, this is being capped up. The problem is the church has well managed the property. They've drained the water so because it was swampy, so you, you couldn't uh, 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 build houses. So now they build houses. And, of course, they don't sell the land. For, uh, that, that kind of selling is, is, was re relatively rare in England. So this land is leased out sometimes for 100 years, but you have to pay, you have to pay money. So the church, has got, the church has done a good job as a steward, and so it now produces, let's just say, 1,200, 1,500 pounds a year, and, the, and, the, and it's now been accepted that this is how we pay the precentor, the, the chief cantor of the cathedral. This is this goes with his job and so he can be taken or, care of. Or as you've just read, or not. Yes, or not. Or not. Mr. Harding or the not. bishop decided yeah. in the end. I think later on you, you when we talked about this earlier, that uh, um, there were bad years. Which yeah. there was almost no money. For the first couple of hundred years the church spends more money on taking care of the old men right. that it's getting in from income. And then, by careful management, they they get this income, but now all of a sudden, these uh, 12 deadbeats are claiming, okay, 11 deadbeats. But they aren't really complaining because they no. don't know. Of course they, they don't. don't know. They're happy. No. They're just, as well, as the archdeacon know. tells them, the archdeacon is portrayed as an SOB, but he says, You've never had it this good in your whole life, right? Exactly. Everything is. But it's a hundred pounds. Think of what. What would they do? Get drunk every day? One <laughs> of them. Do? One of them, them, we're told, does die. Uh, uh, drinks himself to death at the yeah, at the at end. The end. You know, what are they going to do with all this money? Now the money question is sort of interesting. We uh, we we actually spent a couple of hours trying to figure it out. Uh, uh, a pound. A British pound in, say, 1865 or whatever the book, 60, whatever the book is written, is worth about $121 of today's money. So the archdeacon, the, the, uh, the warden has a pretty good salary, 800 times 121, as well as his uh, job as preceptor. And the house. And the house. And the house. Yeah. But these yeah. people, these people are getting free... It's not clear at first they're getting free board, but they are. So they're getting free room, board, clothing, medical care, spiritual attendance. They're getting all this stuff, plus, you know, uh, about 10 bucks a day for expenses. Well, what are they going to spend it on? Beer, pipe tobacco? tobacco. They can't read, so no, they're, they're buying books. Basically. See, you, one of the things that's hard to th get around. Well, I, I look. At, let's say somebody who made a, la a measly hundred thousand dollars today in America. Well, where's that hundred thousand going? Well, 
a thousand to keep up to a minimum to keep up his house. Well, uh, well that, that's twelve thousand for taxes, right? Yeah. Yeah. right. And for then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's got to, and then insurance. Well, you know, I mean, the the the, the Netflix account, the the internet account, the you know, before you buy a single piece of cheese, you're practically bankrupt. They didn't have any of that stuff in England. All that, you know, and, and the price of vittles, the price of basic, you know, beer and cheese is very low. For 10 bucks a day, you could, you could live pretty well if, if, when you got room, board, uh, and, and clothing, because they wear these nice gowns and everything. Everything's taken care of. No taxes. They're, yeah, no, no taxes. taxes. You should be able to save. Yes, you well, think. well, they're dying men, so they don't need to save. But, <laughs> but you know, they should be content. They've got it. They're they're the luckiest, dirty old men in this town. Yeah, but they never complain until somebody points it out. Uh, until, until somebody points it out. Yes. And then who is the one who then the able handy? Uh, that when the law when 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 John Bold and the and the lawyers come. It's Abel Handy, who is the proletarian, you know, lower class person with envy. Well, we got me, I got me rights, you know, I, a hundred, a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds? The archdeacon, when he comes to them and he says, do you think John Hiram meant you to live like gentlemen? <laughs> well, can you imagine, how about we go out to Orton Keys or yeah. one of these housing projects here? Yeah. And say, do you really think... You have a right to live like a middle-class person mm-hmm. when, oh, when you don't hit a lick? And the answer would and be it, yes. Yes, the answer is yes. 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 That's, yes. That's what the head of the local HUD hears. Yes. Put it in the paper, said that aren't these people, regardless of how poor you are, you should live as well as everyone else. This yeah. is what he said on the front page of the newspaper. And why would anybody work? Yeah. Yes. I mean, we... we why would anybody hit a lick? Especially when you can't make a living wage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tom, to put that into context, I looked, I did a little research on what 100 pounds is worth. Yeah. Your house servant at that time made between 12 and 15 pounds a year. Yeah. They had to yeah. Right. board. Yeah. So it was a, it was a very nice sum of money. I mean, Frankly, it, uh, it would have been, yes. Yes. Well, they're getting, what, 30, what, what are they getting? They're 27. Getting... <laughs> yeah. No, it's that. costing him 27 plus pounds a year for that extra six pence each. That yeah. he's giving them. They're getting, that he's giving them out. They're getting a decent yeah. amount. Yeah, I've worked that one out, too. I forget how many pounds a year they're getting. Bill, you were, you were going to well, say. I, I equate uh, uh, the scoffing of these uh, old men desiring to have a living wage with uh, certain people who have purported to be the voice of the Rock Valley College faculty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we need a living Ouch. wage. I know what kind of living wages they make out there. And I would uh, commend you to, read, to read the, the Rockford Register Star's editorial to me, the point of view of which I totally agree. But I have a question about the novel, and that is, if Hiram's uh, will was dated 1484, 54, yeah. 1454, then presumably the Roman Catholic Church yes. supervised the hospital, the building, yes. and so forth. Right. So then with the Reformation, what happened? 
the, the, the Roman Catholic Church was forced out of right. that supervision. Yeah. Right. And in many cases, what's typical, in, in, uh, in all too many cases what happens is that greedy local noblemen seize the properties. In this case, and it, this is not uncommon, in this case the Anglican Church takes over. And you know, the, the, uh, the English Church has always prided itself until recently. By the way, they're having a, they're some of the conference even as we're speaking. Uh, but, uh, because they can't, they can't agree on gay marriage and the, and so the whole worldwide Anglican community is breaking up right now over gay marriage. Hooray! But, yes. but, the English Church was a kind of compromise between uh, between uh, the between the Protestants, especially the Calvinists, it starts out as more Lutheran, but it gravitates more toward Calvinist. Time goes on, but it it between that and and the and medieval Catholicism. So in in the, in Protestant countries on the continent, the prince begins to take over things like uh, the right to uh, issue marriage contracts and all of that. The the political leaders take over. In England, and it was in the Catholic world as a church, in England, the, the church becomes part of the government establishment on the one hand, but it is an independent source of authority. Yeah, you can manipulate it, but you can't control it. And so, like for example, the whole uh, relief system, the welfare system, is not based on government. It's based on the church parish. And the diocese. So uh, this English middle way uh, means that something like John Hiram's will is administered then by the English church more or less, maybe a little bit more greedily than, the, than we'd like to think the Catholics would have done it. Maybe not. But the point is that it, it's a continuation more than a, more than a revolutionary break. But literally, any any priests in the parish would have left them. Yeah. I found it interesting that they, Sir Abraham Haphazard. <laughs> you know, here he is. He's part of the government. He's doing private law on the side. Yeah. For the church. Yeah. And he's attorney general. Yeah. Yes. He's attorney general, member of parliament, but he's got his own private law practice. Yeah. Yeah, things things are quite different. I, th I thought it was your your comparison to Dickens was was quite interesting, Tom. In that, uh, as you rightly said, Dickens focuses on extremes, yeah, good yes. or evil. But um, I think that in, in having been introduced to this novel for the first time, I found it wonderfully charming because of the textured lives that these people yeah. lead. You know, there's. There is no profound black and white. There is no extreme good or evil. And, and I, I, I keep using the word charming because of his descriptive phrasing. Uh, and particularly when Harding's trying to hide out in London. <laughs> I kept saying, you know, what would I do? How would I hide out for what 10 hours? It never, this is the third time I've read this book, and it never occurred to me before. <clears throat> uh, We've all had this thing. What do you do when you're stuck in New York or Washington or London 
and your friends or business are delayed by a day and a half, what do you do? And it, uh, well, you go to the museum, and you go to a coffee house, and you sit, oh, isn't this nice? Oh, coffee, yes, I could play chess. And the whole business of killing time is beautifully portrayed. But Tom, yeah. th this is more intense for Mr. Haring because he cannot go to where he, yeah, he to his son-in-law will descend at any moment right. and, and he can't be there. And then one, one thinks that the son-in-law is going to be an absolute ogre, but in fact he isn't. And no. the reason that he isn't is because of that textured complexity yes. to yes. character. So the, they do mention that at one point Susan Make sure she's there because yes. she yes. knows Papa is about to be bullied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I have to say, one of my favorite Trollope characters, and she she continues in several novels. Uh, she's always a minor character, but Susan Grantley, because you know she's she isn't doesn't have all the naive spontaneous charm of her sister Eleanor. She's a mother of four or five kids, oh. you know, and they're rotten. You know, and uh, <laughs> but although they, that 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 disappears, yes. but you know she is she she's loyal to her father and to her husband, and she has to balance these things. And it's so wonderful. You say, "Gosh, what a wonderful woman this is!" You know, she's got a strong will. She pretends to go along with her husband, as good wives always do. Yes, dear. Of course, dear. You always know Two best, Two years to obey, dear. Yeah. But, of course, she has her way of manipulating things. And, uh, and uh, of course, <laughs> Grantley is uh, a little bit hard to take, but... Would you uh, explain the office of Archdeacon? <laughs> Arch the Archdeacon, well, he's not a deacon. He has, since the, I, don't, I forget what, since the 16th century, he had to be, in the English church, a priest. And so, because the, the whole notion of the deacon, you know, in the early church, by, let's say in the first five, six, eight hundred years, in the early church, you have parallel clerical hierarchy. There's the priests who say mass and perform the sacraments, and there are the deacons who actually have the power and the money and run the church. A majority of popes over a several hundred year period are deacons, not priests. So there was nothing second rate. And, but now, it, to become a pope, you first had to become a priest. And in some cases, it was your ordained priest, bishop, <laughs> cardinal, and made pope within a matter of a day or two. But the point is that the people who ran the church were tended to be the deacons. And, um, and they were not just businessmen. I mean, they were, you know, they, they just had their, their separate functions. So in the English church, the archdeacon is the business manager either for the whole diocese, as he is here, or of part of the diocese. In, uh, and, uh, and so he is, the, he's like the chancellor. He runs everything so that the bishop can have his, his mind clear for other things. And since he's the son of the bishop, he basically runs the diocese. In this novel, he runs the diocese. In Barchester Towers, of course, his poor father, who is such a lovely, charming little character, 
the father dies and they bring in this horrible Bishop Proudy who is sort of low church evangelical with no manners and it's a it and it's a it's a nightmare for 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 Barchester and only Archdeacon Grantly can stand up against him to defeat it. Something's never changed. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But um, by the way, the Barchester Towers is. I read it for I was eighteen and didn't understand it. I knew it was a great book, but you know what do you know? Eighteen, a novel about ecclesiastical politics. <laughs> I was an atheist, but uh, but it's, it's a it is a magnificent book. And uh, but anyway, so an archdeacon is he's both priest and in this case he he head he's head of the canons of the cathedral and he runs the business of the diocese. I mean he and he assume, and, and and Grantly assumes that all decisions are made by him because he can speak for his father. Yeah, if you're an able man in that position, yes. you, you can rise very high and do anything you oh, want. Oh yeah. yeah. But I wonder about those who are less able in other dioceses, what, what they would end up doing. <laughs> well, you know, the Rockford Diocese has had, the Catholic Diocese has had uh, numerous problems with uh, ambitious, uh, uh, what, chancellors? Is that what they're called here? For, or at least they were for a while. Is that what it was? What, what was um, Monsignor Watson, who became a bishop in North Dakota. Kagan. 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 Yeah. Was he a chancellor? He was. Yeah. yeah. No, I know you. Deacon, Deacon Easton can only speak so much about these delicate things, especially when it, when it's being recorded. But, uh, <laughs> but there are, you know, obviously, human beings being human beings, there is no church arrangement you can devise. Oh. Where where corrupt human beings don't try to screw it up. I mean, I don't care whether it's Congregationalist or Episcopalian or Lutheran or Calvinist or Catholic or Orthodox. They're always corrupt human beings who say, this is an easy job. I won't sweat. I won't get calluses. And I can, I, and I have power over people. Well, it's just, it's, it's human life. And one of the things that Trollope tells us is, that to try to eliminate corruption from these institutions is dangerous and destructive. You should try to limit it. In fact, I've got a passage here. He says, um, The tone of our archdeacon's mind must not astonish us. It has been the growth of centuries of church ascendancy. And though some fungi now disfigure the tree, Though there be much dead wood, for how much good fruit have not we to be thankful? Who without remorse can batter down the dead branches of an old oak now useless, but ah, still so beautiful, or drag out the fragments of the ancient forest without feeling that they sheltered the younger plants to which they are now summoned to give way in a tone so peremptory and so harsh? In other words, even corrupt institutions have beauty and use, and what you want is some pruning and cleaning, but you don't want rampant destruction. Should we take a break now? Is it time? What, yeah. what, one of the reasons I voted for Bob Dole... <laughs> <laughs> He's the old corruption? <laughs> no, he, he got my vote when, he, when, when we, he was asked why he was running for president, to which he said, well... 
It's indoor work and there's no heavy lifting. <laughs> okay, well, five minutes. Very honest. Get wine, wine food. No, no, I'm amazed. I don't know who Trollop is, but he has a very sharp eye for social. that the upper classes in England had turned away from Christianity to a large extent, but the, the, the working classes, the peasants, or, you know, ordinary people uh, were still quite Christian, and the church was pervasive in you know because it's a purveyor of charity. And they they have they run schools, and and the whole point of the attack on the Church of England was to get them out of doing all these things so that the government could do it instead. And it seems to me that as inadequate as the Anglican Middle Way might be, and I'm speaking as a former Episcopalian, it has beauty and dignity and decency, not now, but then. And and even Trollope, who, if Trollope has much religious faith, it's more or less, gee, this is, it's nice for us all to believe these things, maybe. But it, it is... He has respect for all the good things in the church, for the good, the charity the church does, the, the the dignity the clergymen represent. These people are role models for an entire society. And yeah. he really honors the fact that Mr. Harding was a cantor yeah. of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Part right. of his role. Yeah. Right. You know, Mr. Harding, the one person we know somebody who is the Lutheran sort of equivalent of Mr. Harding. Well, he's dead now, but who is it? A musician. Oh. So sweet he could not stand up against opposition. Hank. Henry Elling. What a, yes. one, of the most, one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever run across. Yes. And unable to fight against <laughs> wicked clergymen, rotten parish. He, he, he was the headmaster of St. Paul's Lutheran School and the, and the organist and, and choir director. And really such a nice person. And he never wanted to be the head No, no, of course not. He didn't. That was not his specialty by any means. And uh, when I was, for a couple of years, I was their school board uh, chairman. And I agreed to take the, and I said, I told Henry, I said, I'm taking this on just in order to protect you because you're not mean enough. <laughs> I said, I will, you need, and he wasn't a very good headmaster anyway. But that's another issue. The creeps that were trying to ruin what he was doing were all, it was all personal motivation, vanity, ambition, and poor Henry was just trying to do the best job he knew how. Just like the word. Like the word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Why, why do you think uh, Trollope uh, picked uh, Septimus mm -hmm. as, as a name? I mean, I, I looked it up, you know, Seventh, yeah. Seventh, Tertullian, yeah. there was a Roman... No, obviously, we, you know, for many of his name choices, there's a joke or something. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, there, I think, in Victorian times, people just used old yeah, I, Latin yeah. names. Uh, he probably uh, was the seventh the son. Yeah, he could have been. And, of course, if you're the seventh son, you are either particularly good or particularly evil. I'm the uh, I'm a seventh of a seventh son. My daddy was a pistol. I'm a son of a gun. So just dang me. 
Dang me, better get a rope and hang me. Hang me from the highest tree. Woman, would you weep for me? Anyway, a little Roger Miller, just for the uh, listening audience. We can edit that out. <laughs> which, which makes me think of um, this whole thing with his, his cello. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you mean when he gets nervous? Oh, yes. And, and, and he starts yeah. doing what Tom gets. Yes. yes. <laughs> and and yeah. in, in, in the lawyer's office, he starts yes. imagining yes. the lawyer yes. thinks he's gone mad. He's Sir Haphazard. Yeah. Sir, Sir Haphazard. Haphazard. <laughs> yes. I, I did because there were times at the beginning he actually is playing his job. Yes, that's right. Yes, he is. But later on, it's... It's clearly, yeah. it's clearly, you know, when he's under pressure, this is the only thing Almost that gives him a comfort. It's yeah. such a part of his identity, too. Yeah, yeah. it's part of his yeah. identity. Yeah. He wants to be anywhere than where he is. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. then he's playing his cello. The one scene, when he's talking about it, it's a, a single string dirge. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you can imagine that so well, so easily. He's hearing it. The rest of us are. I have I have a sentence that I have marked, and it may may sound a little schluppy, but it really stuck in my head, uh, and it's in the chapter, the tribulation page, my page seventy five, and Eleanor is trying so hard to console him, and uh, so on, and and, um, and he really uh, doesn't want to be pampered or whatever, but she says, and Eleanor was again banished from her father's sorrow. Uh, her desire now was not to find him happy, but to be allowed to share his sorrows, not to force him to be sociable, to but to persuade him to be truthful. I just love yeah, that. Yeah. And, and um, I, I, I hate this phrase. I hate this phrase, and I know you do too. Share your feelings. Yes. Well, exactly. well, well, well. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I almost throw up every time yeah. I hear that. Yes. Yeah, but the thing is, she knows she can't. It's it's not. Um, Oh, forget about. Let's be happy. She's not trying to distract yeah. him. And the words that came to mind when we are told to bear one another's burdens. Yes. And that is so different than trying to make somebody so, or happy in their grief no, or distract true. them. But she but she truly wants to carry with yeah. him. And I just, I've come back to the, that little sentence over and over again. And she is his daughter. She's not a stranger. Exactly. She's not watching him on reality TV. <laughs> this is her... Yes. Duty. There's a. I don't know if you. How many of you have read the novels of Charles Williams? Uh, he's maybe not a great novelist. He was a good friend of Tolkien and uh, and Lewis, and he wrote this one novel. I'll th I'll think of it the name in a second. It, it is by far his, his most powerful, and uh, it's a novel in which one of the major characters is recently dead, and uh, which is a little tough to bring off. And but. Charles Williams believed that Christ's vicarious atonement for human suffering and sin was something that we are supposed to emulate. Yes. And Williams, the core of his uh, sort of moral view 
was that we must learn, well, as Paul says, to bear each other's burden. And so, as Eleanor wants to bear some of right. the burden of her father, and of course, in William's novel, uh, what happens is this, it's a dead thief. He, he, he died robbing a home, and it was a, he falls down the stairs and kills himself. It's an accident. And so he's wandering around. He doesn't know where he is. He's, you know, he's dead. He doesn't even know he's dead. All he knows is he's resentful. Other people have had money. Other people have all the advantages. I don't get none of the breaks. And meanwhile, there's a woman dying in the, the grandmother is dying in the upper bedroom. And she is thinking about some ancestor 500 years earlier who had died, you know, burned at the stake. Mm. And she accepts her pain. In order to alleviate, now this is a little wacky, to, to alleviate yeah. the pain of somebody several hundred years earlier being burned at the stake, she says, I accept the pain. It was a Protestant martyr. And but somehow the, the dead thief wandering around is his, his burden is lifted and he sees a light and he goes toward the light and is saved by the faith of these of these people and but 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 this for williams this is this is a core and, it, and yes he goes maybe way over the top but still bearing each other's burden is a christian duty yeah and jean from that you know that makes so much sense when finally she knows what he's going to do and she says well, she knows what, who her father is, and so she meets him when he comes back from London. And they go home, and, and they're going to get rid of all the furniture, <laughs> you know. But she, she accepts this. It'll impoverish her and yep. deprive her of a dowry. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is this, is, and, and the archdeacon tells him this. Everybody tells him. Right. But you know, on the other hand, he knows his daughter would not have him do anything that would compromise his and integrity. And we we have suspect Susan agrees. Susan clearly does agree. She thinks maybe he ought to compromise yeah. somehow. But Susan is a good girl, a good right. daughter, and and despite her subservience to the archdeacon. Susan knows that her father, by the way, I would try to argue with her father, don't do this. <laughs> but, uh, because it's impractical. But, but, you could see that Mr. Harding looked at this whole thing really through his soul. Yes, exactly. It was. And it made me think of two situations in our marriage. I don't want to get emotional over this. <laughs> but why I admire my husband so much because um, I'll, I'll talk about the first situation. We were hardly married maybe two, three months. And I really, we didn't know each other. We got, mm -hmm. we met on a blind date. I mean, <laughs> our romance was over the telephone. I mean, Truly, we did not know each other, and we lasted 46 years. So, I tried calling him, and I did not call him every day at work, and I I uh, called him, 
And uh, the receptionist said, well, he doesn't work here anymore. Now, every day he had gotten up, put on his tie, went to work, I thought. And, and she told me a terrible lie. Actually, it was an impossible thing because of the structure of, of the work. And so, you know, you didn't have cell phones. No. Come no. to find out, uh, at dinner that night, I, I, was, I was hysterical. And I thought, what kind of a man did I marry? <laughs> Come to find out that it was, he was in the, um, that's when hospital video things were just coming in where they were taping heart surgery and all, all this stuff. It was brand new. My husband had, uh, was in the paper in the news, was the first to install it in one of the big hospitals in the, in the heart uh, department. Well, the, the technology was changing so fast that the sales director said, I've got a warehouse full of equipment and it's outdated but nobody knows that. So he wanted the sales force to sell it. He said, nobody will know the difference. But Ken said, but this is, it, it may work, but this is not the new technology. And, and the director said, but nobody will know. And Ken said, I can't do that. Ken said, and the director said, fine, you're done. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, it wasn't that hard of a decision to make, but when you're newly married, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and you don't know each other very well, and, and it was... So how did you like food stamps? <laughs> <laughs> it got out that my husband was fired, and he had a job offered that next day. Oh, but oh good job. In technology. But, but I mean, but we, we know Kent now. And we know that that's what Kent yeah. would do. Well, and, there was, and there's been another situation that was here local, and I, I'm not going to address that. Um, but the, the clarity of knowing that you can't live with even a squeaky part of what is not yeah. right. And, and I just thought that was the story of Mr. Hardy. Yes. He could not, even though he may not truly understood the whole situation. You know, I don't know. I don't know if we clearly, as Reed, I didn't truly understand how much did he really under really take time to understand the whole financial situation, the structure, everything. But he made a decision through the window of his soul, yeah. and I just love that. It was such a lesson. Yeah. Well, in an affirmation. Yes. I, I got tied up trying to work out the money and all that. Well, at no that. place was it set, it clears, uh, how much money the, the beadsmen were to receive. Uh, Mr. Chadwick, whose family had for many centuries been administering this, got 200 pounds a year. Uh, Mr. Harding's position as warden was awarded 800. But it was made clear at the beginning, there were times where it was in the hole, and all I had to live on was the uh, precentor's salary. And, um, but then as, as the land became more valuable and the rents 
brought in, they raised the price. Now, this had to have been decided by the diocese, presumably the bishop. Yeah, I think the assumption the is that the percent? bishop. Well, yeah. The bishop could have ruled. We'll have thirty men. You know, the the uh, the warden will live with less. But on the other hand, you know, if people have to eat, mm-hmm. priests, priests, you know, clergymen, we have families, especially if you have a married clergy. You, why should an Oxford-educated and well-trained musician, should he really have to eat uh, nothing but bread and cheese and starve as children? And, and there are, you know, Quiverful, who is yeah. re- alluded to in the book. And here, in the later novels, here, there's yeah, a good the, friend of uh, Arabin's. Yes. Who just is a cranky man to get along with. And, uh, and so the bishop, wherever he is, the bishop just sends him off to little poor parishes. Well, the uh, yes, poor Mister uh, Mister Watson in the name. Last Chronicle, right? Because a very deeply learned and brilliant man, but he is he can't get he's not smooth, so he has the worst livings, and he's virtually on the uh, uh, Crawley, Mister Crawley, mm. and it's one of the great characters. It's clearly based on Trollope's own father, who was couldn't couldn't handle business. And the man becomes more and more bitter. I mean, really, there is no... The clergy, if they haven't taken monastic vows, the cler- if you're going to have a married clergy with children, they have right. to be able to live with dignity. Right. Otherwise, people despise them, for one that thing. That is true. Before we uh, go on to just more general conversation, I want to go to what I... And Gail had raised the question before, and I cut her off, because I wanted to build up to it. And that is, I think, a really key scene is John Bold goes to, he's talking to his sister, and she says, well, what's all this story? And he said, well, I've taken up the case of these 12 old men of Hiram's Hospital. And, of course, that brings me into contact with Mr. Harding. I may have to oppose him, interfere with him, perhaps injure him. (coughs) Uh, she says, well, it's a long story, and I don't know that I can make you understand it. And he describes the whole thing, and he says, so she says, you mean to take away from Mr. Harding his, his share of it? I don't know what I mean yet. I mean to inquire about it. I mean to see who is entitled to this property. I mean to see, if I can, that justice be done to the poor of the city of Barchester generally, right. who are in fact the legatees under the will. No, they're not, by the way, it's wool carters. Are the, and there are no wool carters. No, yeah, the right. wool industry has disappeared. So the church so he's he's living, if, if the church has been wrong in diverting the money, he's there. He's also wrong. So, and, and why are you to do this, John, asks his sister. Well, you might ask the same question of anybody else. And according to that, the duty of writing these poor men would belong to nobody. If we are to act on that principle, the weak are never to be protected. Injustice is never to be opposed, and no one is to struggle for the poor. I mean, God, it's like listening to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Except Bold is a good man, and not a hypocrite, not a liar. Bold began to comfort himself in the warmth of his own virtue. <laughs> but is there no one to do this but you who have known Mr. Harding so long? Surely, John, as a friend, as a young friend, so much younger than Mr. Harding. 
That's woman's logic all over, Mary. What has age to do with it? Another man might plead that he was too old, and as to his friendship, if the thing itself be right, private motives should never be allowed to interfere. Because I esteem Mr. Harding, is that a reason? I should neglect a duty which I owe to these men? What duty does he who doesn't know them owe them? Or should I give up a work which my conscience tells me is a good one because I regret the loss of his society? So Mary asks, well, what about Eleanor? And uh, because it's going to ruin his marriage. And, uh, and, and finally, she says, dear John, pray think better of this of this about the hospital, of this about Mr. Harding, etc. Uh, oh, John, think of Eleanor, you'll break her heart and your own. Nonsense, Mary, Miss Harding's heart is as safe as yours. Pray, pray for my sake, John, give it up. You know how dearly you love her. And she came and knelt before him on the rug. Pray, give it up. You are going to make yourself and her and her father miserable. You are going to make us all miserable. And for what? For a dream of justice. You will never make those twelve yes, men right. happier than they are now are. True. You don't understand it, my dear girl, he said, smoothing her hair. I do understand it, John. I understand that this is a chimera, a dream you have got. I know well that no duty can require you to do this mad, this suicidal thing. I know you love Eleanor Harding with all your heart, and I tell you now that she loves you as well. If there was a plain, a positive duty before you, I would be the last to bid you neglect it for any woman's love. But this, oh, think again before you do anything to make it necessary that you and Mr. Harding should be at variance. Remember, Mr. Harding has been his only friend in life. He did not answer as she knelt there, leaning on his knees, but by his face she thought he was inclined to yield. At any rate, let me say that you will go to this party. At any rate, do not break with them while your mind is in doubt. And later on, says, the Barchester Brutus went out to fortify his own re resolution by meditations on his own virtue. Bold is so so yes. inspired by his own set. He has a duty to help the world. His sister is like, no, you have a duty to your friend who has befriended you since you were a little boy, an orphan boy. He's, he has been your one protector and friend. And a duty to this beautiful, charming, pure-minded girl that you want to marry. That's your primary duty. You think this man is wicked? You think he has cheated these 12 old men? And this is, it seems to me, not just the core of the novel. It's the core of moral sanity. People come up with extreme moral claims on you. You know, we've got to save the whales, save the planet, uh, defend us from global warming. We've got to redistribute income. We have, we've got to have gay marriage. We've got to do all these things that are none of your business. Meanwhile, you ignore your wife, your children, your cousins, your neighbors, everybody that really means something to you. And Trollope, a liberal reformer, remember, not a conservative, a liberal. Trollope says, look, you 
you can't go down that road very far. You have prior responsibilities to the people you love and depend on you. Now, this is, this is moral sanity. And uh, I could have given the same lecture based, by the way, on Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Over and over, W.S. Gilbert will portray some loony character with a crazed idea. My favorite example is Frederick in the Pirates of Penzance. Frederick, the slave of duty, he has to do only what's right. So he stays with pirates until his 21st birthday, even though he thinks piracy is wrong, because he's an apprentice. He falls in love with Major General's daughter, and so he goes, as soon as she accepts him, well, I will help the Major General go and root out all these people who have been so kind to me all my life. So he's going he's to have them all arrested or killed. Then they explained to him that he was born on leap day. And so he's, instead of, instead of, if all you've reached your 21st birthday, you're only five and a little bit over. <laughs> As the song goes, a paradox, a paradox, a most ingenious paradox. Well, so then he rejoins the pirates to go and exterminate Major General Stanley. Now, there is something wrong with this boy. He has this extreme version of duty which doesn't happen to take into consideration all the people who are around him, who love him, who help him, who depend on him. And similarly, that's, that's what Trollope, Trollope could have done it to cheat, but John Bold could have been a nasty proletarian agitator or a hypocrite or a liar. No. He portrays him as a thoroughly noble and good person. We don't have liberals like this in our world. No, 150 no. years ago, there were liberals like this. Yeah. We, we have a Barack Obama yeah. who is bold. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. But he is scum because bold is not scum. Right. Right. And so, but and so, it makes it a much better book. I remember there were complaints when they made the movie out of uh, Primary Colors that what Mike Nichols when he directed the movie and put John Travolta in as Bill Clinton, and that the movie was too sympathetic to Clinton, because the book had been just a harsh satire. These people did not understand. Mike Nichols was not a moron. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but he realized, you have to make this villain have some good qualities, or nobody cares. So John Bowl has to be a virtuous, honest, Man of complete integrity, a little bit too much pride. And the humiliation he receives first in going to the archdeacon and then in going to Tom Tosh, talking about a man who gets his comeuppance and we're glad to see it. Yes. So anyway, I, I use this book in a little bit in a chapter of the morality of everyday life because I think it shows the danger of Puritanism and extremism. Whereas the mainstream Christian tradition, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, they all have a tradition of understanding. And by the way, the, the, the Lutherans in the 17th and 18th century have wonderful moral casuistry, that is case-by-case -case analysis of moral problem. Yes, here's the principle, 
But carrying out the principle is not always easy. You can't just say, well, you always have to obey the law, or you get to not obey. Things are never in human life that simple. They're always textured. They're always textured. And that is one of the great things about these higher Christian religious traditions. And we get it in this book brilliantly. Yes, ma'am. I don't know when excommunication came in. Heck, uh, it's not done anymore today. But it's part of Lutheran practice. Hmm. But it was never to throw somebody out. No. So if you found that somebody was living in adultery, it was in the new course you had to follow Matthew 28. And then it, when the, the person was confronted, and he refused to give up whatever it was. And he was not allowed to attend Holy Communion. And, um, but the whole purpose was that he wasn't just thrown out to drive. No. But he was, the, it was the, the role of the pastor or the elders to make sure they kept in contact so that this person would see how severely his sin was. Yeah. And repent, and then be brought back to into save the church soul. to yeah. save his yeah. soul. Excommunication was yeah. as a not part Tradition. of purifying the church. It was a part of Edu moral education. Moral education, and and I use this word loosely: purifying yeah. the person right. to to repent, you know, and back. confess and receive absolution and be brought back. And into it's the done with brotherly love. Yeah. Pardon? It's done with brotherly Abs love. Absolutely. Tough I don't love. think and I don't I don't know of excommunication. Practically doesn't exist anywhere. I remember Dorn excommunicated a couple yeah. jokers a few years did ago. He? Yeah. He did he? Oh. In, in the traditional Catholic way, he put the excommunication on the doors of, really? of the cathedral in Latin. Yeah. Yes, he did. I didn't know that. Somebody, you know, somebody. I was disappointed that uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans did not excommunicate uh, Senator Simon, a father and brother who were pastors, but he was pro-abortion. And his mother was a foundling. His mother was left on the doorstep of the mm. and he and his kids were adopted. I mean, he was. You know, talk about someone who presented himself well. Yeah. And he was very good.